All right, so the word hero gets thrown around quite a bit. Uh, a lot of people have different kinds of heroes. Some of you might have sports heroes, like, for example, this year's Super Bowl MVP. Yeah, okay, good, good. Good job, everybody. I like that reaction. Now, uh, there's certain people that I think usually come to the second service that might make a little noise on that one. Yeah, there we go, back row, all right. Uh, you know, in certain contexts, he's pretty good at throwing a leather thing to a guy and having him catch it and win games and stuff. Well, uh, I think anyone that pours their life into someone else could be called a hero. Um, teachers come to mind, uh, heroes that are changing the lives of, of kids. Um, you can take him off, Luke. Let's get, there we go. Let's get rid of that one. Um, there's heroes that uh, run toward danger instead of away from it. Um, that would not be me. I'm going to be running from the danger. But this next picture shows, you know, first responders who are running toward danger, who are going toward people that need help, um, and also military who are protecting our, our freedoms. Um, another kind of hero, right? Probably getting a little closer to what we might really think of with the word, not the Kansas City guy. Well, I grew up in the 80s. And one of the things about the 80s was that Christians felt the need to make their own version of anything that was popular. Like, I liked board games. I still like board games. At the time, I liked board games. Well, Christians decided there needed to be a Christian board game. And it was like the worst thing I've ever seen. It was called the Ungame, which meant it's not really a game, but we think we need to do something that's kind of popular right now. So we're going to have the Ungame. Anyway, that's not even in my notes. That's just a side. Uh, the 80s Christians seemed to have this need to have this alternative to everything that was popular, including heroes, right? So comic book heroes, that's always kind of been a popular thing. Well, so they came up with their own hero, and I know you're going to be inspired this morning by this guy. This hero is Faith Man. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm always inspired when someone opens up their shirt coming out of a phone booth and I see the letter F, <laughs> right? F really inspires confidence, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, so this is Faith Man, the 80s Christian hero. Thankfully, this is not the kind of hero we're talking about. You can take that one down, Luke. Let's get rid of that. We're talking about heroes of the faith. And we don't have to guess, we don't have to base it on what 80s Christians decided needed to be created in culture. Uh-oh, you coming toward me? Oh, do I have low batteries? All right. This is my battery man right here. So, <laughs> yeah, battery man. That's a real hero right there. Yeah. Um, 80s Christians had this need to make these heroes, but we don't have to guess because God gave us a list in Hebrews 11 of the kind of people that he's looking for as heroes, heroes of the faith. And for the next three weeks, we're going to be diving into Hebrews 11 to kind of see what we can learn from a few flawed followers. Say that one fast a few times. A few flawed followers, which thankfully, we can see ourselves into that category. Sometimes it's hard to see ourselves as heroes because we know we're flawed. We know there's things that we don't quite measure up to. Um, but God says you can be a hero of the faith if you're faithful to me. So we're going to dive into that in Hebrews 11. If you haven't found it yet, it's page 1109 in the Bibles under your seat. And before we jump in, I want to pray together. 
God, we thank you so much for the examples that we can see in Scripture. We thank you that we see examples that aren't perfect. Other than Jesus, we see people that often didn't have a clue. They were even walking with you. They spent time with you, and they, and they still had these questions that seem so obvious to us today. God, I pray that we would, we would see that the truth of what matters is our heart, a heart that seeks after you, a heart that follows you, a heart that believes in you, a heart that is faithful. And God, even though we're talking about heroes of the faith listed in Scripture, I pray that we would be able to find um, room for ourselves on that list as we seek to be the faithful people that you've called us to be. We love you, and we praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. Again, it's page 1,109 in the blue Bibles that are under your seats. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one. If you know someone that needs one, take one and give it, give it to them, please. That's why those are there. But let's read these first three verses in the Hebrews Faith Hall of Fame. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, before I started um, putting this message together, I thought faith was kind of easy to understand. I thought it was kind of easy to explain until I had to do it for myself in order to explain it to you. And so this is, faith is pretty difficult. It's pretty difficult to understand, to explain, and to put into words. It's kind of one of those things, you know it when you see it. You know it when you experience it. Um, but the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand what faith is as a, as a basis, as a foundation for this chapter. Remember, he's trying to encourage Jewish Christians that are enduring persecution. So they've recently come to faith in Jesus, they found the new way, and now they're under persecution because of it. And they're like, well, it seems easier to just go back to what we were doing. Why do we want to do this new way? And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't drift, don't give up. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater, and he's encouraging them over and over and over. He wants to challenge them to stay firm in their faith. And he closes out chapter 10, which we looked at last week, with a verse that I think is important to remind ourselves of because it comes across to me, like a halftime locker room speech. Like he spent all these 10 chapters saying, no, Jesus is better, Jesus is greater, do not drift. And he gets to verse 35 and he says, don't throw away your confidence. I picture my team yesterday, I'm a Texas Longhorn fan and they were down by 20 at the half. And so I picture the coach, because they're trying to make the NCAA tournament and they're right on the bubble and any, you know, this win would have really got them in there. And now they have to wonder and wait again. And so halftime, I can experience, I can think of him looking at them and saying, don't throw away your confidence. Well, the same kind of thing. Stay the course. Endure. Don't forget who we are. These are from Hebrews 10, not from the Longhorn locker room. <laughs> don't forget who we are. We don't shrink back and get destroyed. We have faith and preserve our souls. So again, he's encouraging them. He's riled up. He's like, how could you turn away from Jesus? How could you even consider drifting away from him? He is better. He is greater. We're not like those that drift away. We have faith and preserve our souls. And basically, everything the writer has expressed up to this point, all the reminders that Jesus is greater, that he is the new and better way to relate to God, that he is the once for all sacrifice for sin, cleansing us from the inside out, and that he has to, the power to do it permanently. These truths lead to people of faith. And people of faith live lives like the ones he's about to list. 
So he's setting all of this up with this definition. So chapter 11 is really a continuation of that speech where he's encouraging them because the heroes of the faith kind of life comes about through an unshakable hope in God. And before introducing any of these heroes, he sets the table by defining faith, by showing us the foundation of this hope. And everything leading up to this point in the book has pointed to that, the object of our faith, and that is Jesus. So three things I want to talk to you about faith today. First of all, the definition. It's an important place to start. It's where the writer of Hebrews starts. The definition of faith, he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, this definition gets a little tricky because the Greek words for assurance and conviction are not found very frequently in Scripture, just a couple of other places. And so we kind of have to infer what he really is trying to say here. Um, since this definition forms such an important foundation, it's kind of crucial that we do our best to understand what he's communicating. Because we have to be able to define faith to have a chance to discern whether or not we have it, right? So let's look. I'm going to start in kind of a weird way with the second half of the definition first. He says, faith is the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. The word for conviction is also used to mean proof or evidence in other places. It's something objective. It's not subjective. It's based on evidence, not feelings. Faith is the proof of things not seen. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Well, that already seems a little weird, doesn't it? Because doesn't faith need evidence to exist? How can faith be evidence? Well, let's jump down to verse 3. He says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So he's directly linking back to his definition in verse 1. This is an illustration he's giving us of that definition. How do we know God spoke the world out of nothing? Well, we know it by faith, by conviction in the truth of Scripture, because God has proven himself to us. God has proven himself in our lives, therefore we trust him. By conviction, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. Of course, some of you are saying, that's just a circular argument. That doesn't prove anything. How can I say I have conviction that God made the world, therefore I have faith that he did? Well, if we bring in another verse that uses this same word for understand, I think it'll help. In Romans 1.20, it says this. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood, that's the same word, understood, by what has been made. So the evidence that God created is creation itself. Again, you're going to say, what? That's a circular argument. But hang with me. God's fingerprints are evident throughout creation. Creation. Just think of a couple of examples. The earth is the exact right distance from the sun. Do you know what would happen if we were any closer? Well, we wouldn't be here. We'd all be fireballs pretty quick. Do you know that there was like a big solar flare and everybody lost their cell phones? Uh, imagine if we were closer. You would lose more than your cell phone. Um, if we were a little further away, we would all freeze and life would be unsustainable. We are the perfect distance 
from the sun for life to exist on earth. Did you know the earth is tilted at exactly the correct angle to create seasons so that, again, parts of the earth don't burn up and other parts of the earth, large portions, don't freeze. We have the perfect tilt so that things happen the way they're supposed to in the rotation and the, I'm not a scientist, but you know all that stuff. The moon is the exact right distance from the earth so that tides don't flood any more than they do. And it creates that flow that's uh, essential for life in the ocean. That's just three of lots of examples just in our solar system. Think about the human body and the systems in our body. I think Derek's talked about the eyeball. You just think about what the eyeball does to be able to see and transmit information to our brain that we understand. Um, and you know it's actually upside down and our brain flips it for us. Just the, the small things, that's not small, seeing is kind of important, but these systems that God put in place in the solar system and right down to the smallest parts of life are fingerprints of who he is. The parts are arranged just as they need to be. Now, if I, if I took out my iPhone this morning and I took it all apart, every little piece, and I dropped it in a box, and I told you, get ready, this is going to be a great experiment, and I picked up the box and I started shaking it, how long would it take for my iPhone to come back together and be a working model again? You would never expect it. It's not going to happen. And that's starting with the correct parts, right? The perfectly correct parts that I just took off my iPhone are in the box. All I have to do is shake it just right and shake it for long enough. No, that's not going to happen. Creation is evidence of God. It's evidence of intelligence. It's evidence of um, activity that has a purpose, that is sustainable for life. All the parts are arranged just like they're supposed to be. And scripture tells us that all of creation points to God as the almighty intelligent creator who orders all of those details for life as we know it to exist. Things didn't come together by chance. Creation shows that evidence. His fingerprints are there for all to see. And here's what faith does. Faith recognizes his activity, his work, and his fingerprints. And it understands, that's the word that's used in those two scriptures. It understands that they are the evidence of his eternal power and his divine nature. So that's the point of verse three. And again, it links back to the definition of verse one. Faith is the conviction, it's the proof, it's the evidence of things not seen. Well, let me tell you another story to kind of maybe help flesh this out. A couple of years ago, Jennifer and I had the chance to go visit friends in Hawaii. And they were kind of our tour guides the whole time. So we were trusting them to take us and show us the different things that were, that were cool on the island. We were on Kauai. And, um, one of the things they wanted us to see were the sea turtles that would come up to the beach and, and go to sleep at this same beach every night. Well, I was a little skeptical. I'm like, sea turtles are going to come to the same spot every night. And they're like, yeah, trust us. It's really cool. So we go to this place. It's kind of across the island. And I don't know if you know Kauai, but it has a road that goes all the way around. And there's like this little stretch that you can't do. And we were like over here and we had to go over here. And so it was a really long drive, even though it was only a couple of miles away. It's really odd. And so we took this long drive around the island, and we end up over there, and um, we are standing on the beach with like 20 other people and just waiting. You know, waiting is hard. It is for me, anyway. So we're waiting for these sea turtles. I'm, I'm wanting 
you know, the Amazon Prime immediate satisfaction of the sea turtles. Like, I'm here. Come on. Get on the beach. And we're standing there. We're talking. People start to gather around. And before you know it, someone says, I think I see one. And I'm like, no. There's no there's, they're big. You're not going to think you see one. They're, they're really big. And so we're waiting. What I had to do in that moment was trust my friends that this was going to be worth it, that it was actually going to happen. I had to have faith in what they told me was true about the sea turtles coming up on the beach to stand there and wait for this amount of time in order to experience the thing they told me was pretty cool to experience. Well, sure enough, they do start coming up, and it's one, and then it's two, and then you, you, you're just filling this little inlet thing, that, and they're coming up on the beach, and before you know it, they've covered this beach, and it actually was really cool. But for me to experience that, I had to have faith in the truth of what my friend was telling me about what was going to take place. If you've never been there, if you've never seen it for yourself, you are now trusting in my recounting of what I saw when I saw the sea turtles in Kauai and how cool that experience was. My testimony about the turtles is bridging the gap between what you know and what you cannot see. Sitting here, you can imagine them, right? You cannot see them, but you're trusting because I've told you the truth of this situation, that it's something that actually happens. Faith in God sees and understands his fingerprints throughout creation and trust in his testimony of himself in scripture. Faith in God sees it. In other words, faith bridges the gap between what we know and what we cannot see. It bridges the gap between what we know and what we cannot see. And it's based on the evidence of God's fingerprints throughout all of creation. The fingerprints are there for everybody to see. Some choose to see them and see God. Some choose to see them and try to explain them away and put their faith in something else. But either way, it's an exercise of faith. Now, I don't know if you're old enough to remember these, um, but do you remember the 3D hologram pictures that were so popular a while back? And it just looked like a weird blob of pattern and color. But if you stared at it hard enough, if you looked through it, I don't know, I never really got the hang of it. If you crossed your eyes just right, somehow a magical 3D picture would pop up. Some of y'all were really good at that. I wasn't one of those people. Um, and suddenly someone would say, oh, I see it. It's a castle. And I'm like staring at it. I can't see it. How do you know there's a castle? Well, because I can see it. Can't you see it? No, I can't see it. It's the same kind of thing. Faith looks at God's fingerprints and sees a picture of God himself in creation. That's the conviction of things not seen. It shows us that faith is not just a blind response. It's an understanding response. Remember, the word understand was in all of those verses. It's an understanding response. It's not blind. It's based on what we know. It's based on the testimony of God himself about himself, and he is a trustworthy testimony of himself. It's based on the testimony of creation. It's not a blind response. You don't believe things into being. Faith is not like a wish you can believe in hard enough and make it come true. And I think we've gotten off track in, in that in some ways in the church. Because faith is based on truth that must be accepted based on the testimony of who God is in the things he has made. And again, it bridges the gap between what we know and what we cannot see. 
So we've talked about the second half of verse 1 so far. Y'all hanging in there? I told you it was harder than, than I thought it was. What about the first part of verse 1? The assurance of things hoped for. Well, the word for assurance can also be translated substance. And I think this is an extension of what we just talked about. It's why I did them in reverse order. Faith is based on substance, something real. It doesn't create. It's not a mind game or wishful thinking. It stands on substance. It grabs hold of the very essence of God. It's powerful because it gives our faith a here and now reality to the future hope that we have in eternity. It's something that changes us here and now. It benefits us here and now. God works through us here and now. And that hope is yet to be realized fully, but our faith is based on the substance of our experience with who God is and what he has done. So I think the word assurance is great. Um, I totally approve of the writer of Hebrews using that word because it's a strong confidence in the reality of our future hope. It's based on what we've already experienced of God, what we've already seen him do. So when you take all this into account, we can paraphrase verse 1 like this. Faith is confidence in a yet-to-be-realized hope that bridges the gap between what we know and what we cannot see. Let me say that one more time. Faith is confidence in a yet-to-be-realized hope that bridges the gap between what we know and what we cannot see. St. Augustine said it this way. He said, faith is to believe what you do not see. The reward of this faith is to see what you believe. And the writer's saying that those who follow Jesus will live by faith. Are you following Jesus and living by faith? So that's the definition. Secondly, we'll see that faith has always been the key ingredient in finding favor with God. It's always been the key ingredient in finding favor with God. Let's read our, uh, the rest of our verses for today, four through six. The writer says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So faith has always been the key ingredient in finding favor with God. We have two examples here of what living with this kind of faith looks, looks like. And again, he's illustrating what he's just told us in verses 1 through 3. And it ties back to verse 2, which we didn't even talk about. He says, for by faith, the men of old gained approval. So he's setting up again his list. These are certainly two men of old that he uses as his first couple of examples. If I was writing the Heroes of the Faith chapter, no one, no one checked with me, but if I was writing the Heroes of the Faith chapter in Hebrews, I'm not sure I would start with Abel and Enoch, right? They're not, like, you don't have their picture on your wall at home, probably. Um, what do we really know about Abel and Enoch? Well, Abel, he's a son of Adam. His offering was accepted by God, and his brother's wasn't. Abel's was accepted, Cain's wasn't. And Abel becomes the first murder victim in history because of Cain's anger. We don't even know for sure why his offering was accepted and his brother's wasn't. But we see one key element here, according to the writers, writer of Hebrews, and that is, since God accepted it, 
it must have been offered by faith. And what did that faith offering lead to in relation to God? It's a testimony that Abel was faithful. He was commended. The faith he showed through his offering led to God's approval, God's favor. Abel's brother also gave an offering, but by the result we see that it was not in faith. And this shows us again that it's not just what we do, it's the heart behind what we do that illustrates our faith. Sometimes you can do the right things and not be acting in faith. It's the heart behind what we do that illustrates our faith. And faith has always been a part of finding favor with God. Well, what about Enoch? Why is he listed here as an illustration of this kind of faith? The original mention of Enoch is found in Genesis 5, where Moses is listing the generations after Adam and Eve. And as he's listing them out, in verse 24, he stops and he says, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. And then the writer of Hebrews expands on that and he says, Enoch was spared from experiencing death because through his faith he had found favor with God. He's saying the same thing here that he just did about Abel. He's saying because uh, he walked with God, because God took him, we know that he had faith in God. He's building a case here. Faith has always been the key ingredient in finding favor with God. And what's interesting about this is when you look at the original text, the word faith in the Old Testament where you find these guys in Genesis, the word faith is not in the stories. The word faith is not in the accounts. So why does he use them as the first two examples of faith heroes? Well, again, they're not listed because their incredible faith is mentioned in their original uh, account. It's because they're mentioned they, because we know they found favor with God. The writer of Hebrews is building a, uh, an argument. He's making a, a reasoned argument for us to know. Since they were uh, commended by God, we know they found favor with God. Therefore, we know that they had faith because we know that without faith, it is impossible to please God. The only way to do that is through faith. Since Abel had the better offering and Enoch walked with God, we know they found favor with God. And favor with God is evidence of a faith-filled life. So therefore we know, the writer says, they were men of faith. So how big is your faith? Does God find favor in you? Are you living by faith? It may not be visible. Again, it's the heart behind what we do that demonstrates our faith. And the third thing we see is faith is based on who God is and what he has done. So verse 6 picks it right up and says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder to those who seek him. Again, we know Abel and Enoch had faith because they found favor with God, and without faith it is impossible to please God. And the end of the verse here is the foundation for his assertion. He's expressing it in two parts. You must believe that God is. Now that seems pretty easy, right? You just believe that God exists. It's an obvious first step, but it doesn't just mean that. It doesn't just mean you believe in God or accept facts about God. It's alluding back to when God is answering Moses at the burning bush and Moses says, who should I tell them sent me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. Tell them I am sent you. To believe that God is means to embrace the totality of who God is, what he has done and what he requires of us. To understand the gap between his holiness and our sin. To understand that anything else we might put our faith in will fall woefully short of his glory, power, and majesty, to know that he is the one and only 
true God. To believe God is means turning control of your life and future over to him. To understand that God did not come into being, he is not growing or changing, he will never cease. His name is I am. And part of faith is knowing and embracing his absolute existence and then reflecting that truth in our lives. So we must believe that God is and all that that entails. And second part is to believe that he rewards those who seek him. Completely tied to the first part. You believe everything about God, you understand it. You understand that anything good we experience is an overflow of his character and his grace in our lives. And it pleases God when we acknowledge that the only true source of goodness and love in the universe is him. So we should look to him first and foremost for our purpose and fulfillment. So those two parts to faith, first of all, this is what faith does. We know it because we can see it like we saw it in the men of old. Faith comes to God with confidence in who he is and convinced that he rewards those that seek him. Faith comes to God with confidence in who he is and convinced that he rewards those that seek him. So what does it take to be a hero of the faith? Well, if we look at all six of these verses and kind of recap this path of reasoning that the writer is using here, um, this opening definition in verse 1 is mirrored then by the final statement we just looked at in verse 6 where he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Then connecting to verse 6, the conviction of things not seen is the understanding that God is by recognizing his fingerprints throughout all that he has made. And the assurance of things hoped for is the belief that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. So our faith is not based on our circumstances, not based on our feelings. It's not nebulous. It's not mysterious. It's not blind. It's based on who God is and what he has done. And when we believe in him and draw near to him, we find favor with him, just like the men of old. And we can be encouraged because that is evidence of our faith. So what does it take to be a hero of the faith? Well, good news. Being a hero of the faith is not about being famous or always performing noticeably heroic acts, or coming out of a phone booth and ripping open your shirt and having a faith man F right in the middle. Right? The heroes of the faith are not mentioned because of their, the incredible acts they performed. I mean, we had Abel who gave an offering that God accepted. We had Enoch who walked closely with God and so God spared him from death. That's pretty miraculous, but he was gone by that point. He wasn't doing anything anymore. Uh, he walked closely with God and he was not. I, they are listed because they demonstrated absolute trust in God through their obedience to his direction in their lives. And this is going to be a theme throughout. They're listed because they demonstrated absolute trust in God through obedience to his direction in their lives. Their faith led to obedient action, even when it didn't make sense or lead to obvious benefits. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at some of those specific examples. But as we go through this series, I want to say don't make the mistake of focusing on just the larger-than-life results from some of these examples. Understand that we're learning from flawed followers, but we're learning from them because they had faith in who God is and what he's done. He accomplished his work through those faithful but flawed people acting in faithful obedience. Because the only way to please and bring glory to God is through faith. Believe God is, and he rewards those that seek him. Will you be a hero of the faith and follow God in obedience? Because seeking him is an action. We have to act on our faith. True faith always leads to action. 
And I, I've told a little uh, parts of this story before, and I don't want to make you think I'm putting myself up as an example of a hero of the faith. Definitely a flawed follower. But there's one example in my life where some guy named Derek Carpenter <laughs> called me and said, I think God wants you to come to Carson City and help us um, continue with the church we've started called Common Ground. And I said, well, tell me more. And he said, well, we can't pay you for a while. You'll have to do radon with me. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. Well, it's crawling under houses. Here's how he described it. You crawl under houses and you wrap the basement like a present. And you make sure it's all sealed everywhere in the basement so that you can take the radon and vent it out above the house so that it doesn't go through the house and give the people in the house uh, cancer over time exposure. If you haven't had radon checked, it, it kind of is an important thing, especially if you live in the same house for a long time. Um, but anyway, so I, I'm not a construction person. I don't do things like that. Um, Derek's always talking about building walls and building things, and he's always doing stuff like that. That's, that's not me, okay? I have soft hands. Uh, and so, uh, but it was obvious that God was in this. I have four kids. Housing in Carson City is expensive, and there's not a lot of it. We were trying to rent a house. That, w that wasn't a thing. It's a little easier right now for some reason, but the cost is crazy. Um, but anyway, so we moved into an apartment with the four kids uh, for six months. And then God blessed us with an incredible uh, house. He was faithful to us in, a, in an incredible way. But I will say all this, again, not because I'm saying I'm an example of faith. All I did was say yes to God's direction. And I can say, I can't imagine a greater blessing than being a part of what he's doing in and through you at Common Ground now, seven years later. It didn't make any sense at the time. Leave our big church in Alabama to come here and gift wrap basements <laughs> to help start a church that was barely started. Um, but faith that isn't acting on really can't be called faith because faith is a verb. Faith is a verb, and that's the last thing I want you to get. It has to be acted on to really be called faith. And then God does the work. God does the blessing. God does the amazing things that we see in this chapter and that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks, so I hope you'll be here. But what action is God calling you to today? Are you a flawed follower? Yes. But you can be a hero of the faith if you allow him to be the object of your faith and allow him to do the work in and through you. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for this morning and I thank you that you can and you do choose to use us. And God, I know I fall so short of being um, faithful to you uh, so many times, so many days. But God, I pray that uh, my faith would grow. Faith's not only a verb, it's like a muscle that we have to exercise and it gets stronger. And so, God, I thank you for the testimony of your people. I thank you for the testimony of these heroes. I thank you for the testimony of yourself. I thank you for your fingerprints in creation where we can look and we can see you. And we can know that you are real. And, God, I pray if there are those in this room today that haven't seen you, that haven't surrendered to you, that haven't put their faith in you, that maybe today would be the day that they say yes to that invitation. God, we love you. And we praise you, and we want to be found faithful. In Jesus' name I pray.
So if, if today is a day you do want to talk about what it means to be a, a person of faith, I'll be right back here by the pole at this exit. I would love to talk with you and pray with you about anything. If you are a guest today, again, thank you so much for being with us. We'd love to meet you at our guest station over here right after the service. Let's continue to worship. This time is super important to me. Um, every week when I'm uh, putting the service together, the first thing I want to think about is this moment. Is at the end of the message, when God's been speaking to us through his word, what song, what words, what feeling is going to create an environment where we can just really focus on what he's saying to us? Where we can just really focus on responding to him? And so I hope this time is that for you. Whether you're sitting and praying, walking around praying with someone else, singing the song, whatever God leads you to do, it's about responding to him over these next few moments. So I hope we give you the space to do that today.